Morning, everybody. Before we get into our sermon today, I just want to take a moment and wish each and every one of you a happy Reformation Day. Tomorrow, October 31st, is Reformation Day, and it's called Reformation Day because 499 years ago, October 31st, 1517, is thought to be the date in which Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. And that those 95 theses were debating points that he had with the Catholic Church, of which he was a part of. And they began a sequence of events which came to be known as the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation, whether you know it or not, is really one of the defining moments in recent human history uh, for our identity as Christians, particularly Protestant Christians. We uh, see that in the Reformation, we have five major tenets. Sola Scriptura, which means by the Scriptures alone, that God does not communicate primarily through a person, a pope, a unique individual, but that he communicates to us primarily through the Scriptures themselves. We see a second tenet of the Reformation being sola fide, by faith alone, that you are saved not by any works that you do, but simply by faith And that leads to the third tenet, which is sola Christus, by Christ alone. No other mediator is needed. There's no other doorway between you and eternity with God, but the person of Jesus Christ. The fourth sola is soli de gloria, which means to the glory of God alone. That God would do all of these things in the lives of people. He'd do these things for you for the sake of his glory. And nobody else receives glory for the salvation of men and women and boys and girls Because God does this by his grace alone, sola gratia, and that is no work of our hands, but simply a mere gracious act of God in which he brings salvation. So happy Reformation Day. We as Christians don't have to celebrate death. We get to celebrate life, and we get to celebrate life eternal. So as you go about your other activities that October 31st might bring, amen. Yeah, that's wonderful. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be together, and we thank you for the reforming work that you do, that you have not left your people to wander down errant paths of practice or belief, that you have raised up our forefathers um, to stand for biblical fidelity. We thank you for the reforming work that you still do, in the life of the church at large and in the life of individuals like each one of us. And we pray that as we approach the scriptures today that that reforming work would be an ongoing dynamic. Even today, as you nourish us, as you continue to provide for us, we ask that you would reform us. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it has been said that old rock hounds never die. They just slowly petrify. That old skiers never die. That they just go downhill. That old optometrists never die. That they simply just lose their looks. That old salesmen never die. That they just lose their line. And old tennis players never die. They lose their bounce. Old podiatrists never die. They just lose their souls. Uh, And old postmen never die. They just lose their zip. Old realtors never die. They just become listless. 
And old doctors never die, they just lose their patience. Old architects never die, they just change their plans. And old plumbers never die, they just drain away. Old cooks never die, they just go to pot. And old farmers never die, they just get plowed under. Old bankers never die, they just lose their interest. And old dentists never die, they just get down in the mouth. Old fishermen never die, they just smell like it. Old quarterbacks never die, they just pass away. Old anesthesiologists never die, they just run out of gas. Old quilters never die, some of you are quilters. Old quilters never die, they just go to pieces. And old musicians never die, they just decompose. You know, there are a lot of people that go through life thinking about death, but never their own death. They think about death as it applies to somebody else. We think that in many ways we can cheat death. And yet, as we come to Genesis chapter 5, we see that the overriding reality of this passage is the reality of death. And as cheesy as it is to give these tongue-in-cheek analogies about cheating death, we see that in this long genealogy of Genesis 5, that there's a common theme. <laughs> and the common theme is that death, death reigns supreme in our human experience. So open your Bibles with me. Turn to Genesis 5. It's found at the beginning of the scriptures, page 4. And what you see here is a unique chapter in the Bible. This chapter, the entire chapter from start to finish, is one long genealogy from Adam to Noah. And you might say, Pastor Nick, why are we going to spend time talking about the names of people we've never met or heard of and how long they lived and who their children were? It seems like it might be a waste of our time. But what we're going to see in this genealogy are a few very important ideas that the Lord gives to those who read it. And so let's look at Genesis chapter 5 together. And we're going to start out just by reading the first five verses. Genesis 5 starting at verse 1, says this. It says, This is the book of generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his own image, named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. We see at the beginning of this passage of Scripture that death interrupts our purpose. God gives a wonderful purpose. He gives a purpose that is found in maybe one of the greatest blessings that we have as humans, and that is that we are made in his image. We are made in his likeness. We don't often think about that, but it is one of the greatest blessings that you have in your life. And we were reminded of that a couple weeks ago as we looked earlier in this Genesis account. To be made in God's image simply means that in many ways we are like God. And the truth of that reality defines who we are, and it should define how we act as well. Now, all of us struggle with different forms of insecurity. 
Some of us more than others. Some of us struggle with the idea of self-worth in this life. And all of these struggles in some way or another point to a lack of appreciation in this reality. That the king of the universe, beautiful in his being, perfect in every possible way, the one who embodies genuine love and balances that with perfect justice, that this perfect, majestic king has seen fit for me and for you to carry his image into the world. Wow. To be made in the image of God himself is a profound reality. And so our purpose in the very beginning is to represent God, to enjoy his blessings. And even here we see that despite the fact that humans are no longer a perfect representation of God by the time we get to Genesis chapter 5, that sin has entered the world and it's ravenous in its nature as it spreads throughout the human experience, that God still sees fit that humans would carry on his image as he had given to Adam and Adam and his wife Eve give birth to Seth who is found to be in their image and likeness and spread on down through humanity. But then we see that the curse takes hold, that the mood of the passage changes, and that as much as Adam and Eve have this wonderful blessing of God's image and this purpose of enjoying what God has for them, that death enters and interrupts this purpose. As verse 5 shows us, Adam died. Look at it with me. We then get to the resounding theme of this as we look on to verse 6, because Adam wasn't the only one that died. Seth had lived for 105 years, verse 6, and he fathered Enosh, Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. And when Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years. He had other sons and daughters and thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. And when Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahaliel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahaliel 840 years, and had other sons and daughters, and thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. Mahaliel, similarly, gave birth to Jared. He had other children. His full days were 830 years, and he died. And Jared, similarly, lived 162 years. He had children. His total number of years was 962, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. despite all of the human achievement that we saw in chapter 4, the proficiencies in tent making and managing livestock, the fact that humans became masters of harp and lyre, the fact that humans became metal and bronze workers and even made weapons, despite all of the things that humans could do, 
One thing reigned supreme. Every single one of them died. Martin Luther once said that every man must do two things alone in this life. He must do his own believing and he must do his own dying. The writer George Bernard Shaw once said that death has an impressive success rate. One out of every one person dies. And it would become the story of the rest of the Bible. As we saw the warning to from God to Adam and Eve in chapter 2, verse 17, the day that they would eat of this tree, the day that they would rebel against God, the day that they would sin, they would surely die. You press fast forward and you move it all the way to the New Testament, and Paul talks about this reality in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. He says, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. So death interrupts the purpose that God gave us. This is the state that we are in. And yet even in the midst of this terrible, overarching theme, there are glimmers of hope. So let's look at two of them. The first is found in verses 28 to 31. Move down to the end of the chapter with me. We see that only God can provide relief from the curse of death. It says in verse 28, when Lamech had lived 182 years, and if you were here last week, this is a different Lamech that's talked about in chapter 4. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So Lamech names his son Noah and he prophesies about him saying, that this one shall give us comfort concerning the work of our hands. And it's a word play that we don't recognize here in the English. The word play is that the word Noah and the Hebrew word for comfort, Naham, sound very similarly. And so in naming his son Noah, it would call to ear, it would remind the people of comfort because the words were closely related. He didn't know what God was going to do through this son. And yet God used Lamech to give a glimmer of hope to the people. And this is where we see maybe the main point of this passage, or at least part of it. And that is God alone. God and God alone can break the certain cycle of death. Nobody else can do it. It's a dominant feature of life on earth. God alone can break the cycle of death. And we see another glimmer of hope here. And that is as we read through this passage, there is one person who didn't die. Look with me at verse 21. We have a whole list of eight people who had children and they died. And the description for them is pretty uniform, except for different names of children and different numbers of years on the earth. 
But when we come to verse 21, we see something about this man named Enoch. This is what it says. It says, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. He walked with God. When you stop to consider the nature of that description, it becomes rather intriguing. Enoch is the only one that does not die. And here are just a couple of observations from what the text itself says. <coughs> Excuse me. It says he walked with God. He didn't live. All of the other listings of people say so-and-so lived for this number of years. He had a child, and then he lived this number of years. For Enoch, it says Enoch lived lived this many years, and then he walked with God for 300 years. He didn't live, he walked with God. There's an intentional contrast that's being made there. And this walk was not a short-lived stroll through the park. This wasn't a walk that happened during his morning devotions. This wasn't a walk that happened for a couple weeks following that spiritual high that comes from the high school missions trip. This is the walk that lasts 300 years. And as we read the text, we see in a highly abnormal fashion, this must be a walk that's pretty special because it's not mentioned just once. In a very short section of verses 21 to 24, it says in verse 22, he walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years. And then he mentions it again. Verse 24, Enoch walked with God. And he was not, because God took him. Think about the idea of walking with someone. My grandmother's name was Lucille Gatsky. Lucille was a stubborn German woman. She was short. She was quirky. But she loved her grandchildren dearly. And one of my favorite memories of her was when Amy and I were fairly newly married. My grandmother was not one to just sort of bestow advice upon people. But she sent us a card, and I don't remember if it was for a birthday or a holiday, but in the card it stuck out to me that she gave some very clear and direct advice. This is what she said. She said, make sure that you try to take a walk together every day. It gives you the chance to hold hands and talk. Make sure you talk. What does it mean to walk with someone? What does it mean to walk with God? As I try to picture the life of Enoch, 
and how this must have played out, I'm struck by the fact that the description is so short and yet so powerful in its nature and obviously powerful in its effect that it distinguished him from every other person on earth. And with the exception of just one other, every other person in history, that I want to be one, too, that is identified as walking with God. We were praying before church today with the elders in the back, and we were praying, Lord, that you would allow us to be people that when we get to the end of our days, people don't just say, he lived, but that people would say, he walked with God. How is that for a defining characteristic of your life? With all the things that you could do or all the things that you could be defined by or all the things that you could pursue, all the things that constitute the good life, but that people would say about us, not just that he lived, but he walked with God. What does that mean to walk with God? Well, the Bible actually talks about this a lot more than you might have realized. There's a number of descriptions. Let's just look at a couple of them together. Walking with God means having faith in God. Now that sounds rather pedestrian. And yet we see in Hebrews chapter 11 verses 5 to 7 that Enoch is listed in this hall of fame of faithful men and women throughout history. This is what it says. It says, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Through the ups and downs of life, this faith was the thing that was constant for Enoch. And it was credited to him as being pleasing to God. What kind of faith is pleasing to God today? Well, Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 tells us. It says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, this is the faith in God that we have today. Not, an, not faith in simply God the Father, but also in God the Son. Since you have faith, since you have received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him. And established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Faith in the Lord Jesus establishes us and continues to build us up in a type of walk that's pleasing to God today. It's not a one-time decision. It's not something that merely happens when you come forward and pray in response to a sermon. It's not something that happens simply in the quietness of your own heart. Those things are true and they're good and they are in many ways the initiation of the first step in your walk with God. But there are a lot of steps after that ongoing faith in the Lord Jesus is an ongoing faith in the person of God. And it constitutes walking with him. Now this type of faith is, of course, applicable to all of us. But I think today, specifically, of you who are young moms, this type of walk with God is the daily dependence upon him to provide you strength when the little kids are out of control. 
when it feels like the inmates are running the asylum. This type of walk with God is the walk that says, Lord, I depend upon you for wisdom. I'm going to walk with you because I know, even though I can't feel my way out of the chaos that is my current daily experience, that you will accomplish your purposes in the long run as I walk side by side with you. Walking with God is having faith in God. It's also being obedient to God. Walking with God means obedience. We see this in Leviticus chapter 26. This is the Old Testament law. And the prophet says on behalf of the Lord, If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season and, lay, and the land shall yield its increase and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Obeying God is not just some casual happening of life. It's intentional in its nature. It's something that we do not just when we want something, but it's something that we do when things are going well. I think this is applicable to all of us, of course, but specifically I'm thinking of those of us who are maybe in the business world. When things are going poorly, it's our natural inclination to say, God, please help me. I don't know how I'm going to pay the rent at the end of the month or pay my employees. But when things are going well, it becomes pretty easy to lift our foot off the accelerator of our spiritual relationship with God. But walking with him is pursuing obedience when things are going well and when things aren't going well. And when things just seem generally pretty dull. The good, the bad, and the mundane seasons of life. Walking with God means standing with God. Even when it's not popular to do so. Enoch was one such figure. Known through biblical history as a person who warned others with the conduct that was happening around them. The book of Jude, thousands of years after Enoch lived, talks about him. And this is what it says. It says, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Now, Enoch's words were not popular. Those words are never popular in any context. But when you consider what we just learned last week in chapter 4, that sin was making its way through all of culture, and that this question, is this whole creation experiment of God beyond repair, was being asked quietly in the hearts of the righteous, then surely... He was standing for God in an unpopular way. This highlights the fact, though, that God doesn't raise up people to be mean-spirited, but he does raise up people, men and women, 
who are going to stand firmly for him when it's not popular to do so. Enoch's words were words of loyalty to the king of kings and the lord of lords, yes. And they were also, as hard as they were, words of love to those that he told them to in the hopes that they would turn from their ways and move back to God. Walking with God means standing with him, even when it's unpopular to do so. Because God alone can break the certain cycle of death. So walk with him. God alone can break the certain cycle of death, so walk with him. We see another way that walking with God is indicated in the Bible. We see that walking with God means a sincere and genuine following. In a time where there are a lot of superficial professors of faith in the Lord, in a time where it's easy to fake it, spiritually speaking, in a time where it's easy to live a duplicitous life, to say on Sunday I'm going to do this, but the rest of the week I'm going to do this. We all know that to be true. Most of us have experienced a season of that in our own life. Some of us might even be experiencing that right now. But walking with God means a sincere and genuine following. The beginning of the book of Revelation is a letter to seven churches, and it gives them warning. And the Apostle John, writing this vision, writes to the church at Sardis, and this is what he says. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet, you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not sold their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Walking with God, to have a life that walks with God, means sincerity and genuineness. No duplicity. Everything is laid before him. There are a lot of other descriptions. I'll just give one more. Walking with God means a lifelong commitment, doesn't it? There are a lot of different temptations in life after you put your faith in God that might lead you to walk another way. We could name them through all the seasons of life, but let's just focus on the back half of life. One of those temptations to walk another way happens when your kids go to college. When mom and dad have been intentionally raising up kids and they know that they have a responsibility to bring them to church, to teach them the things about God, to model certain things to them. But when those kids go away, when they leave the nest and they're out on their own, now mom and dad have a choice to make. Do I continue to walk along this path with God? Or do I walk another way? And that's a very real temptation for a lot of people. Another crossroads of temptation with regard to walking with God is found at retirement. We've met a lot of people over the years, all of us have, who have very, very pure desires and expressions of how they're going to spend their retirement years. How they're going to leverage their resources in the final couple laps of life. 
And yet, at the very same time, they're fighting against the narrative of American retirement, which is in many ways poisonous to the idea of walking with God. Because the narrative of retirement in the Western world is, you've worked hard your whole life. Now it's time to sit back and consume. You've worked hard, now just sit back and enjoy the fruits of your labors. I mean, life is now about you and the next entertaining thing that you can enjoy. And that idea of retirement is, leaves person after person, family after family, wanting. <laughs> Especially when it comes to this idea of walking with God. Because God has so much more for you than that. So much more than that in a walk with him. Another temptation, another crossroads of life that tempts us not to walk with God is the loneliness that is sometimes accompanied with old age. Friends, for those of you who are among us today who are on those last few laps of life, don't ever believe that God has abandoned you. He is right alongside of you so walk with him. God alone can break the cycle of certain death. So walk with him. God alone can break this cycle of certain death. That's what we see in Genesis 5. So walk with him. I want my life to be described as a person who walked with God. Through the hills and through the valleys and through the spring and the summer and the fall and the winter seasons of life. To have a consistency of faith in him. When the ups and downs come, I know that he's walking right alongside of me. And he's talking to me. And I am talking to him. It's striking to me that in this list in which the youngest person dies at 777 years old, and the oldest person dies at 969 years old, that God took Enoch at just 365 years. Did you notice that? He broke the cycle of death, and he broke it definitively. Why? He broke it because he desired his presence in a different way. I wonder why God did that. I closed this morning with a description of the walk of this life for us that's written by Marcus Dodds. He says this. He says, Enoch walked with God because he was his friend. And he liked his company because he was going in the same direction as God and had no desire for anything but what lay in God's path. We walk with God when he is in all of our thoughts, not because we consciously think of him at all times, but because he is naturally suggested to us by all we think of, as when any person or plan or idea has become important to us. No matter what we think of, our thought is always found reoccurring to this favorite object. So with the godly man, everything has a connection with God and must be ruled by that connection. When he falls into sin, he cannot rest till he has resumed his place at God's side and walks again with him. This is the general nature of walking with God. It is a persistent endeavor to hold all our life open to God's inspection and in conformity to his will, a readiness to give up what we find does not cause 
or what we find does cause any misunderstanding between us and God, a feeling of loneliness if we have not some satisfaction in our efforts at holding fellowship with God, a cold and desolate feeling when we are conscious of doing something that displeases God. This is walking with God. Necessarily tells us on the whole life and character. It's easy then to understand how we may practically walk with God. It is to open to him all of our purposes and hopes. To seek his judgment on our scheme of life and idea of happiness. It is to be on thoroughly friendly terms with God. I want to walk with God. I hope you want to walk with God because he desires to walk with you, to be on that thoroughly friendly terms to the, worst, the person and work of Jesus and in a faithful life through all of its seasons from this day until the end. So let's pray and ask God for that, shall we? Please pray with me. Father, the intimate nature of a walk is striking to us. The idea of moving from the place that we are to the place that we're going with another person is striking to us. And our own shortcomings in the midst of this idea of walking with you are ever before us. And yet we know, Lord, this is your desire. And so we ask sincerely that you would help us to have faith, that you would help us to have obedience, that you would help us to stand for you when it's not popular, that you would help us to be sincere, and that you would help this walk to be lifelong in its effect. You alone break the cycle of certain death, and so we want to walk with you. And we pray that you would help us in this way. Amen.